Just a quick heads up before we start this week's episode. This episode acknowledges the existence of sex. Listener discretion is advised. And with that, let's get on with the show. In September of 1910, an announcement appeared in the English journal The Occult Review. The announcement was an invitation to the Rites of Eleusis, a seven-week-long series of ritual ceremonies to Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon, in the style of theatrical performances, to be held at Caxton Hall, Westminster, from October 19th through November 30th. Each ceremony would be roughly two hours long, and guests were asked to wear colors appropriate to each. Black or dark blue for Saturn, violet for Jupiter, scarlet or russet for Mars, orange or white for the Sun, green or sky blue for Venus, mixed colors for Mercury, and white, silver, or pale blue for the Moon. The invitation was signed with a single initial, P and followed an article full of rave reviews from previews. The creator of this theatrical spectacular was none other than the wickedest man in the world, Alastair Crawley. Victorian England was ready for a spiritual revolution. Queen Victoria herself had long demonstrated her interest in more mystical forms of Christianity. Couple that with the Romantic movement, which pushed back against industrialization and modernization by hearkening back to a pre-modern world that was more in tune with nature and spiritual pursuits, and you have the perfect recipe for new groups dedicated to occult studies. Public organizations like the Theosophical Society held lectures and exhibitions, while closed groups like the Freemasons promised social exclusivity and secret knowledge to their initiates. Evidence of the public's obsession with the occult abounds in the romantic poetry of Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, gothic novels like Bram Stoker's Dracula and Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, and countless Penny Dreadfuls, not to mention the many paintings produced by Victorian England's pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood that depict spirits, fairies, ancient gods and goddesses, and magical ritual. It was in this setting that Britain received its first school of magic. In 1886, Freemason and London coroner William Wynne Westcott received a collection of manuscripts encoded in alphabetic cipher. After decoding these documents, Westcott discovered that they contained the description of ritual initiations into a curriculum that included the mystical teachings of Kabbalah astrology, tarot, geomancy, and alchemy. Also present in these documents were the name and address of a German countess, Anna Sprengel, who claimed to be a medium able to contact secret chiefs, superhuman beings who communicated on a higher plane of existence and oversaw both the moral workings of the cosmos and organizations on Earth dedicated to understanding those workings. In October 1887, she wrote to Westcott, telling him that he had permission, along with two of his fellow Freemasons, Samuel Little McGregor Mathers and William Robert Woodman, to form the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. In 1888, these three founders opened the first Temple of the Golden Dawn in London, 
the Temple of Isis Urania. Over the next two decades, hundreds of men and women would be initiated into the Order in any one of five different temples, ranging from London to Edinburgh to Paris. In 1892, McGregor Mathers claimed that the secret chiefs had revealed new wisdom to him, and he created a second inner order, based on these new teachings, called the Rose of Ruby and the Cross of Gold. By making himself the sole conduit between the secret chiefs and the Golden Dawn, he had, in effect, wrested all power away from the other two founders. This second order was available only to those who were personally invited to join and it became the center of the Golden Dawn's magical ritual and practice, while the First Order mainly focused on the study of esoteric knowledge and magical theory. In 1897, Westcott retired from the Order. He explained his decision in a letter to his friend. The reason is a purely personal one, owing to my having received an intimation that it had somehow become known to the state officers that I was a prominent official of a society in which I had been foolishly posturing as one possessed of magical powers, and that if this became more public, it would not do for a coroner of the crown to be made shame of in such a mad way. So I had no alternative. I cannot think who it is that persecutes me. Someone must talk. In order to understand the appeal of a society like the Order of the Golden Dawn, it first helps to understand the sources of the magical traditions floating around Victorian Britain. The foundations of magical ritual lie in the classical Greco-Roman and Egyptian past, translated and interpreted by Renaissance humanist scholars like John Dee, and finally appropriated by the occult societies of the modern age. Three major sources of influence shaped Victorian occultism the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, and Egyptian magic. While interest in each of these traditions was relatively widespread, it was McGregor Mathers and the Golden Dawn that synthesized them into a single, cohesive magical tradition. The celebrated poet William Butler Yeats, a member and later leader of the Golden Dawn, summarized the principles of Victorian ritual magic, which he believed was handed down from ancient times, in his Ideas of Good and Evil. The first principle is that of the collective unconscious, that multiple minds can access one another and share a single energy or consciousness. The second principle is that of collective memory, in which individual memories are united by the memory of nature herself. The third principle is that the collective mind and collective memory can both be accessed through the language of symbols. The symbolism of the magic rituals and rites of the Golden Dawn all served this single purpose, to access the common mind and the common memory of the universe. But not everyone was on board. In 1900, in order to defend the legitimacy of the Second Order, McGregor Mathers claimed that the founding documents of the Order of the Golden Dawn, the cipher manuscripts originally translated by Westcott, were forgeries. Members throughout Britain began to question the legitimacy of the Order and its teachings, and the Order began to fragment and fall apart. In an attempt to regain control, the Second Order began an investigation into the manuscript's authenticity. But when this ultimately proved impossible to determine, matters worsened. 
McGregor Mathers, by then residing and overseeing the temple in Paris, was enraged to hear both that members of the Second Order had decided to investigate the manuscripts without consulting him, and that they had failed so utterly in doing so. Unable to leave Paris and travel to London himself, he sent an avenging angel in the form of Alistair Crowley. Born Edward Alexander Crowley, Alistair being just one of his many pseudonyms, Crowley was in many ways the product of Victorian culture. His father was a preacher among the highly puritanical Plymouth Brethren. But when Crowley left home to attend King's College in London and Trinity College in Cambridge, he became fascinated with poetry and the pagan past. His status as the heir of a large fortune gave him the financial independence to pursue his studies in esoteric knowledge and ritual magic. MacGregor Mathers himself initiated Crowley into the Order of the Golden Dawn in 1898 in London's Isis Urania Temple. Crowley continued to live the life of a typical upper-class British gentleman, buying a country estate on the shores of Loch Ness in Scotland and writing poetry in addition to his occult studies. As he progressed through the ranks as a member of the Golden Dawn, Crowley increasingly experimented with his sexuality and with a shockingly libertine lifestyle. His sexual exploits with both men and women became not just news, but legend. Some of the leaders of the London Temple, including Yeats, refused to initiate him into the Second Order, claiming that his many scandals made him unfit for magical practice. Rather than accept his superior's ruling or change his habits, Crowley instead traveled to Paris to meet with MacGregor Mathers, who, possibly to get back at his rivals in Britain, personally promoted Crowley. When MacGregor Mathers sent Crowley back to London, it was with the goal of seizing control of the London Order, starting with a temple space in West Kensington, the Vault of the Adepts, a court case ensued, and the judge awarded the space to the London Lodge, since they had been paying rent and were, after all, the lawful tenants. The case finalized the schism between the London Order on one side and Crawley and MacGregor Mathers on the other. After this failed coup in Britain, Crawley, an avid mountaineer, decided to travel abroad, taking trips to Mexico, San Francisco, Hawaii, and India, where he studied Hindu and Buddhist principles and practice, and made a failed attempt to climb K2 before returning to Paris in 1902. While in Paris, he married Rose Edith Kelly, the sister of the painter Gerald Kelly, severely harming Crawley's friendship with the Kelly family. Despite the family's objections, the two newlyweds left Paris for a honeymoon in Cairo. As a further product of his Victorian upbringing, Crowley shared the racial and social prejudices of early 20th century Britons, which somehow combined disdain for people of color with a fascination with exotic cultures. He explained his view of magic as will-made manifest in the language of imperialism, crediting the sheer will to power for the successful conquests of the British Empire. Like other Victorian Britons, he saw cultural appropriation as a birthright. Arriving in Egypt, Crowley and his new bride posed as royalty and rented an apartment where they began to invoke ancient Egyptian deities. In March of that year, Rose began to fall into trances in which she proclaimed that the gods were waiting for him. 
In April, Crowley claims he heard the messenger of the Egyptian god Horus, who revealed that humanity was entering a new age, and Crowley would serve as the prophet to guide humanity into this new era. Crowley wrote this revelation down in his Book of the Law, which became the basis for his new religion, Thelema. As Crowley saw it, this new era, which he named the Eon of Horus, required new religious practices and beliefs. He began to develop the central tenets of Thelema, based on a Greek word meaning to will or to purpose, which eventually crystallized into three major principles. One, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Two, love is the law, love under will. And three, every man and every woman is a star. Taken together, these tenets illustrate the core goals of Crowley's new religion, that it is the duty of each man and woman to discover their purpose in the universe, their true will. In this discovery, love is essential, but only insofar as it is in accordance with the will. Finally, those who discover their true will are like stars, perfectly fulfilling their purpose in time and space. In essence, Crowley saw himself as a lone voice crying out in the wilderness in favor of a revolutionary modern world and against the strictures and conformity of Victorian society. In this spirit, Crowley sought to turn another Victorian obsession on its head in his magical rituals, sex. Contrary to popular belief, the Victorians didn't suppress or repress sexuality as a rule. On the contrary, they were obsessed with categorizing, medicalizing, theorizing, and otherwise bestowing order on the chaos that is human sexuality. Crowley thoroughly participated in these meditations on human sexuality by applying them to his own ritual practices. He theorized that sexual frustration created physical and mental blockages that prevented humans from connecting with their divine selves. Through experimenting with drugs and sex, Crowley sought to create breakages of consciousness, attempting to reach the plane in which ego ceases to exist in the abyss of the infinite. Expounding on the second principle of Thelema, Crowley wrote that sex destroyed an individual's sense of separateness, or, in his words, In love, the individuality is slain. Love breedeth all and none in one. The ability to abolish the boundaries between self and other, rational and irrational, mind and spirit, was the key to the magician's ability to make his will manifest. A sorcerer, by the power of his magic, has subdued all things to himself. He could fly through space more swiftly than the stars. There was none that did not obey his bidding in the whole system of ten million times ten million spheres. He has his desire. Crowley's ideas and exploits earned him a number of derogatory nicknames, many of which he embraced openly, including the Beast and the Wickedest Man in the World. His wickedness was primarily seated in the fact that he did not, could not, conform to the expectations of the society around him. Crowley was living in a new age. Small wonder he managed to leave a series of Victorian occult societies in his wake. Crowley's vision was of a new social order that went beyond socialism, communism, fascism, democracy, and traditional religion— 
His desire was to wed rule of law with absolute individual freedom. Thalema, as he explained, was a scientific solution to this problem. He firmly believed that the first nation to adopt the principles of Thalema would become the next world leader. By the 1930s, he was trying to get a copy of the Book of Law into the hands of Adolf Hitler, arguing that it would give Nazism a stronger philosophical basis from which to operate. When these attempts failed, he turned to the British government during World War II and attempted to promote Thalema as the only means for Britain to beat the Germans. Parliament politely declined. Crowley's vision of magic as the product of absolute individual liberty was a rejection of the magical traditions of his time. But in many ways, it recalled the Renaissance figure of the solitary magician. The political strife among occult societies like the Order of the Golden Dawn is in part due to the strict hierarchical structure of the societies themselves. But it's this very hierarchy that made these societies so attractive to some upper- and middle-class Victorians in the first place. New initiates were tempted not only by the promise of secret wisdom, but by the opportunity to rub elbows with their social betters, and perhaps advance their own positions in society. This highlights another innovation of Victorian ritual magic, its focus on group practice. Traditionally, practitioners of magic worked in relative solitude, perhaps consulting with other individuals or sharing books, but rarely practicing together. Occult societies, on the other hand, not only offered a venue in which to learn alongside others, it allowed advanced initiates to practice ritual magic in a spiritual community that certainly echoed, if not imitated, religious congregations. In a moment when science was tearing down the mystical and spiritual practices of Western religion, Victorian ritual magic began to incorporate Eastern philosophical, religious, and mystical principles. Some forms of ritual magic, especially in the form of Crowley's Thelema, became a way to embrace modern notions of individuality in the midst of a society that insisted on strict conformity. While the Church of England excluded women from being ordained as clergy, occult societies offered women a place to act as spiritual adepts and leaders. One such woman was Annie Horniman, whose leadership of the Order of the Golden Dawn alongside William Butler Yeats helped hold together the English temples in the midst of schism and discord. It should be noted, however, that few practitioners went so far as to see women as equals— Crowley himself insisted that women were the moral inferiors of men, while simultaneously arguing that Thelema would be the key to women's emancipation. It's difficult in our postmodern setting to fully grasp both the strict sense of social and gender hierarchy and the sense of possibility and progress that the Victorian era held for many. Crowley was not the only one to sense that a new age was dawning at the beginning of the 20th century, an age full of revolution, of idealism, and of power. Having explored the limits of human sexuality and freedom from the rules of polite society, Crowley lived long enough to oversee the end of modernism. By the time he died in 1947, the world was sick with the excesses of violence that progress had begotten. Oddly enough, the postmodern era didn't reject Crowley's ideas. It embraced them. 
Crowley became one of the fathers of the postmodern revolution, providing a foundation for movements and developments ranging from the growth of Wicca and neo-paganism, to the Western fascination with Eastern spiritual practices, to the primacy of individual expression and the recognition of the full spectrum of human sexuality. And maybe, a series of revolutions toppling the old cultural, social, and religious orders is exactly what the wickedest man in the world had in mind all along. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts and help spread the word. You can subscribe to Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Special thanks this week to Greg Adams and Randy Wild. Original music this week is by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. We've recently added new membership tiers to our Patreon page, including options to sponsor an episode on the magical topic of your choice, or to have me read a message on air during an upcoming episode. To become a supporter, to learn more about the show, or to participate in our new Patreon poll, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening, and stay enchanted. <laughs>